Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. So, we pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your good gifts towards us. And your Word is a good gift. And the gifts that we all have as we come and gather, I pray that you would straighten out our thinking, that you would increase our affection for you. And uh, as you do that, we will say thank you, Lord. Amen? So this is the last message in our Corinthian series, and I wanted to start with a little bit of chapter 15 before I rolled into chapter 16. Why? Because the Bible didn't have chapters when it was written. It was just a letter, and I wanted you to get a little mindset of where... Paul was before he moved into his next topic, and he starts really with a big picture of heaven. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will rise imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. All the medical people in the medical field, out of a job. Right? Out of a job. Pastors too, by the way. Everything will become real. It says, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know, so he's got this big picture in mind. And I think we need to be big picture livers, right? You need to live within the big picture. We need to say, what's the end, right? If everybody, in a sense, lived their life as if they're standing on their tombstone, I think we'd make different decisions, wouldn't we? I think we'd spend our time and our money different ways. Big picture thinking makes you good, but small habits make you great. I think our small habits come from big picture living. And this is a small habit that Paul rolls into. He talks about giving. So at the end of his letter, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do on the first day of every week, Each of you should put aside something and store it up. Uh, So he's saying, everybody, the first day, you know what day that is? Sunday, yeah. So on Sunday, put aside something. And this is kind of like a building campaign. You know, building campaigns are like, aside from your normal giving, give towards this thing. Because these people still gave to their local local servants, their local people in need. But Paul is saying over and above that, pull some money out like a budget, set it aside every Sunday. And, and then he says, um, as he may prosper, so there will be a collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those uh, whom credited by letter to carry the gift to Jerusalem. So he isn't saying, when I come, I will take the money, right? What is he saying? He's saying, when I come, you guys pick some people and they take the money. But he does say, if it seems advisable that I should go, I will accompany. And you know, one commentator said this. He said, if the offering was too small, it wouldn't seem advisable. 
because it would be a slap in the face. But if the offering was larger, maybe Paul then, it would be good for him to go because there was a famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul's planting all these churches and he's saying we should be funneling some money to these saints in Jerusalem who don't have enough food to eat. And so that's what he's working on. But what does it say to us? I think it says that our giving should be regular, right? Habitual and proportional as he may prosper. So meaning... It isn't just, oh, I just give when I feel a little bit of emotion or I give when, like, that's fine over and above giving. But Christian giving is regular. It's like, oh, no, I, I give, I give, like, regularly to this. And also it's proportional. Some people only make so many dollars and they give a proportion of that. And some people make a lot more dollars and they give a proportion of that. And so it's proportional. That's the way that our giving should be. That's the way... Paul is saying it. I remember somebody said to me years ago, now, pastor, isn't a tithe, you pay all your bills and 10% of what's left over, you give. And I kind of smiled inside because I thought I was living like, I, I was spending everything I made, right? And uh, I said, well, I wouldn't give anything then. <laughs> you know, they said, no, it's, 10% is, is like, it's as part of you, what you pay your bills. It's part of what comes in, you know. One person said, do I pay 10% of gross or net? One pastor said, what do you want them to bless, gross or net? I don't think it really matters. It's not legalism. It's the heart, right? Jesus gave us everything, and our hearts should just respond in, in giving. It's interesting, though. If, if this is true, giving and being generous isn't just a good idea for other people. It's actually a good idea for us. These two uh, guys, I don't know, I think they were sociologists out of, uh, I think, Notre Dame. They wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity. And, and look what, it, look what he, they said. They said, um, for people who want to be happy, to enjoy life, to lead purposeful lives, which we assume includes nearly everyone, this paradox of generosity is important to understand. It tells us that we ought not simply work to acquire, accumulate, save, grasp, and keep and spend for ourselves. We need instead to live into this paradox of generosity. What's the paradox? We need to learn to share our resources generously with others. Then, in turn, we will likely find ourselves happier, healthier, more purposeful in life. The data examined here shows that this be not simply a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. Check this out. He said, the practice of giving 10% of one's income is associated with greater possibility of being happy in life. Stated in the reverse, Americans who do not give away 10% of their income run significant risk of ending up less happy than they might have been otherwise. In fact, as a group, they are less happy. So whatever Americans lose monetarily by giving 10% of their income is offset by a greater likelihood of being happier in life. And we have a good reason to think that the increase in happiness is more valuable than the last dollar given away. Have you ever, you know, we all like want things in life, but have you ever sometimes thought, you know what I wish I could give somebody? Peace. I wish I could buy for them like a cup of joy. Is, is it just me who sometimes you look at somebody and 
and they have everything, but what they don't have is what you wish you could buy for them. There are the non-tangible tangibles. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And these guys would say that generous people, they actually many times do get back monetarily, but there's something valuable. Psychologists have run these tests where they gave people money. I can't remember the different amounts, but let's say they gave them 30 bucks, which I doubt they would do that for a test. And they give it to 100 people. And they say to one group of the people, don't do anything with it. They say to another group, I want you to spend it on yourself. They say to another group, I want you to give it away. Then they interview them afterwards, and they found out that the people who gave the money away were happier. Isn't that interesting? There's just something about generosity. I think it's because we, we take on the image of Christ a little bit. I mean, God set up the universe to work where Christ gave up everything so we could have life. And when we look a little bit like him, whether we know it or not, it's life-giving for us. Well, the scripture goes on in Corinthians, and, and he really starts talking about relationships. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intended to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul, Paul knows the importance of being with people for long periods of time. Some people may have had an influence on your life where they just kind of a hit and run or they said something that sticks with you. But most of the time... It's the people you worked with, the people you live with, the people you rub shoulders with, the people you really get to know that have had an influence on your life, isn't it? I, I had some friends and they called Gretchen and I up and we've known them for 30 plus years and, and man, we were really good friends and we moved away, but we've stayed connected through the years and they called up and they're like, hey, we're running a place in Florida for a week. We want to spend the time with you guys. And uh, they said, what week's work? And I'm like, I'm like, I'll get back to you. But it's such a blessing. So now we have this time spent, planned with some friends that we've known for 30 years. And these are friends that, you, do you know the friends where you kind of stay at the surface and it takes a while to go deep? And then you got the other friends where you can just go deep right away, right? You, you can skip all the surface stuff and you just start talking about things of substance. And that's the beauty of us hanging out with these friends and it came with time and effort there's spiritual friendships i think god wants us to develop spiritual friendships look look at this section of acts so acts is kind of like the history book you have a letter to Cor the corinthians but this is a little history of when paul went to corinth so in acts 18 we see that paul left athens and went to corinth and he found a jew named aquila a native of Pontius recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, we don't, you know, sometimes you might not like our government. But can you imagine a government that has the power to say, all Italians leave Cleveland? Can you imagine that? So this guy's like, hey, Jews, you may have lived here, you know, for 70 years. Get out. And they had to get out. And he went to see them, and because they had the same trade, they, they worked in the same business, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul, his first friends, are work friends. And if you read the scriptures, you'll see 
Priscilla and Aquila mention a number of times. They were friends with Paul. They were, they were gospel sharers. They worked alongside Paul, but they also shared the gospel wherever they went. You know, work, God puts you in your places of work, not just so you can make money, but so you can have an impact for the kingdom. I mean, that, that's, that's part of it. I remember when I was leaving uh, sales and I went and told my customers that I was going into the ministry. Most of the customers were like, yeah, I, I figured that. Like, that makes sense, you know. And because I would pray for my customers. And if I had an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, it just came out of, came out of me because it's who I am. And you guys, I remember there was one guy, I had two lawyer offices next to mine. I became friends with both of them. But the one I became closer with, and I watched his faith in Christ grow. Like early on, we got talking about giving. And he almost got mad at me when I said, oh, I give 10%. You know, I wasn't a pastor. I was, I was just a Christian. I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's like, you should be Catholic. Get five bucks a week. That's all you need. You know, ten if you're gracious. And I was like, oh, no, I, why, don't you, why don't you give ten? You know. And, and he was actually mad. But I watched his relationship with Christ like grow as I was there. We're work friends. Well, the scripture goes on and Paul says he reasoned in the synagogue. So Paul would move into a town, hang out there. And he's Jewish, so he'd go to the synagogue in the town. And he'd talk to them about Jesus. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, meaning he had more time to preach. And he testified to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. He's the Messiah. And they opposed him and reviled him. So what does he do? He shakes out his garment and he says, look at this line, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From then on, he went to the Gentiles. So there's kind of this Old Testament thing where you're called to tell people the truth about Jesus. And if you don't speak, you get this out of Ezekiel, you're responsible for their blood. Paul's like, I am not responsible any longer. You're responsible. I remember years ago as my brother was uh, uh, not living a Christian life. This is my older brother. I was in high school. I remember one time going into his room and I shared with him from Galatians where Hey, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And it says, those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then I went to Ezekiel and I, and I opened up the, the passage that said, you need to warn somebody once. And if they don't listen to you, their blood is on their hands. They're responsible. And I said to my older brother, hey, I, I'm, not, I'm telling you this once. I'm not going to be that pain Christian brother that's always preaching to you. I'm just telling you once because now you're responsible. You know what he said to me? I hated you for that. <laughs> but guess what? He, he surrendered his life to Jesus later on and, and he never forgot it. And this is what Paul is talking about here. Because you know what? Not all friendships last. He's trying to build spiritual friendships. He's trying to tell them about Jesus and it doesn't work. Sometimes friendships are for a season. Sometimes spiritual friendships last the whole time. Other times they're short last and that's okay. But, but Paul moves on and it says he left the house and he went to the Gentiles. He went to Titus, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was right next to the synagogue. And Cyprus, the ruler of the synagogue, now he believed and together with his entire household. So Paul plants this church, baptizes people in Corinth. He makes spiritual friends. And you know, a lot of, I think more guys than, than women, we just don't have a lot of friends. 
You know, and I think it takes intentionality. I, I said to somebody recently that we're building friendships with, I said, we may never be best of friends, but unless we put stuff on the calendar and spend time hanging out, we'll never know, right? Like, don't put a lot of weight on it. We're going to be best of buddies, you know. No, but let's just spend time together and hang out and see if there's any chemistry there. And, and in psychology today, they're like, they say the same thing. Adult friendships don't automatically happen. They have to do what Paul did. He was intentional. He put time and effort into going into a place, building spiritual friendships, sharing the gospel. And, and then look what he says, and I think this is probably good advice. He says, take initiative. So what, he, what they're encouraging is cultural soft spots, places where it's normal to make friends. And then he says, throughout the process, uh, getting to know somebody, affirm who they are by showing enthusiasm. You know what it is? Don't be Eeyore, right? Yeah, life is okay, isn't it, right? Like, you know, people don't want to be with Eeyore most of the time. Uh, be uh, be friendly, be nice, be affirming, and, and um, show interest in them. Be consistent and reliable. Right? I mean, these are just simple stuff. Read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, like I think, men, we need to be willing to open up ourselves, be vulnerable, create, create, find uh, spiritual friendships for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of your spiritual health. A lot of guys would be like. Who's your friends? My wife. There's nothing wrong with having your wife as a friend. I think it's really important. But we need to develop others. And, and it has to go deeper than just sports. All right. But speaking of sports, um, Paul uh, ends with these words. And when I read these words, it reminds me of like my, my wrestling coach in high school. He was really good at motivating people. Do you ever have any good coaches who they'd give you that talk before you went out on the mat, or they'd pull you aside, you know, and they'd, they'd inspire you. So here's the end of the letter, 16 chapters, long letter. What is Paul going to sum it up with? Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. You gotta love that, right? Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I mean, that's powerful. And, and when I read this, I read also on in the book of Acts, and look, look at the word that the Lord spoke to Paul in the book of Acts. Anybody have a Bible with Jesus' words in red? Yeah, yeah. So if you go to this section, Jesus' words will be in red. It's interesting. So it says, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul's words to the people seem to be similar to this. Stand firm. Do not be afraid. It's like he's echoing what the Lord said to him. He said, be watchful. You know, we have a, a new puppy, and um, it has uh, tormented our cat. I think our cat is like 8 to 10 years old. It's just a puppy, and puppies want to play. The cat doesn't know anything about playing with puppy dogs. But what's changed about the cat is how it eats. So my cat used to do like every animal, stick its face down into its dish. Now it takes its paw into its dish and brings the food up to its mouth. Why? Because the attack dog could get me when my head's down, right? So it's like eating like this, very messy, right? I need to spoon, spoon train it. But... Um, but it's interesting. You know what the cat's doing? Watchful. Be watchful. 
And he's saying, you need to watch out what's going on inside your heart, what's going on in the world. Keep an eye out on your spiritual condition. And then he says, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Now, when you say this, what is he talking about? The faith. You know what I believe the faith is? This is the truth of Scripture. We stand up here, we sit here, and we confess the Apostles' Creed. And there's a lot of voices that say, well, you know... You don't really have to believe all this stuff. You know, things have changed. There's a new way of thinking. You need to see things. This be progressive, right? And, and there's all this, these voices that are saying, and Paul is saying, no, 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 stand firm in the faith. That's the objective faith. But I believe because he's speaking to individuals, he says, you stand. He's also talking about your subjective faith, what you hold on to, what you believe, your faith. So it's stand firm in holding on to truth, but also stand firm in the faith that you hold on in your heart. Stand firm in the faith, and then, I love this, act like men. It's only place in the Bible you read this. Act like men. What the heck does that mean, right? Because this letter is to men and women. I mean, right after this, he greets Priscilla, right? So ladies, act like men, right? What are they supposed to do? Right, grunt, spit, lift heavy objects, scratch themselves? Like, what is he saying, right? What does it mean to act like men? It's actually a noun that's been verbed. Only place in the New Testament, act like men. It's interesting, in the Septuagint, so Septuagint is a Greek translation. So they took the Hebrew and they put it into Greek so more people who didn't speak Hebrew could read it. We do have the same word in the Septuagint. And it, it's, it's Hebrew word for courage has been translated into this act like men. So I think what Paul is saying here is ladies, boys, children, girls, act like men. Be courageous. Be courageous. I think it takes courage to be a Christian these days. It took courage back then. It takes courage now. When you're in a place and you think, oh, if I tell him I go to church, if I tell him I believe in Jesus, if I, oh, I might be thought of differently. They might, they might marginalize me. They might, as a pastor, I, I, when I bring it up, immediately, it's like somebody passed gas in the room. You know, I mean, they're like, mm, you get like looks, you know, and stuff and almost immediately. And, 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 and yet, act like men. Be courageous. Because we don't know if the gospel is going to come out of our mouth and somebody finds it offensive, but somebody else is like, I've been dying to hear that. I've been waiting for somebody to tell me that they believe in Jesus because I want to know more about that. Act like men. When I thought of acting like men, my mind went to a movie that Bryce uh, gave me a, a DVD to watch a while ago, Hacksaw Ridge. Great movie. I won't ruin it for you, but it's about a guy who was a conscientious objector during World War II. And they abused the conscientious objectors during World War II because, dude, fight, right? Don't be a wimp. Don't be this. Why don't you want to fight, you know? And yet, if you watch it, you'll see he had more courage than everybody else, more courage to save more lives than anybody else. Act like men. And then he says... Everything you do, be done in love. Be done in love. And, and this word that he is used for love here is agape. This is the sacrificial love. This morning, Gretchen's like, I got to get up early. 
I'm like, why? She goes, I'm, I'm making food for somebody. And I just thought, she could sleep in, but she's getting up and making food for somebody else. You know what that is? That's agape. That's sacrificial love. I, um, I have a, a puppy I mentioned, and I also have a grand puppy, I mean a grandchild. And, uh, and they, they, I take them both on walks. What happens? <laughs> All right. Uh, and so my 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 puppy attacks Sammy, uh, and my puppy for a week has had intestinal stuff, and it hasn't been good for us. I mean, one night I got up eleven times because if you leave it in its cage when it's whining, you will be sorry. And um, the cage is in our bedroom say no more uh, and then for the whole week until last night thank you lord five times was the minimum of getting up just wake up five times through the night you don't get good sleep right it, it's not good so i'm telling my daughter about this she i want a little bit of pity she looks at me and she's like dad i hardly ever get a full night's sleep like, i got two little kids right i'm like oh right yeah you know why? Because parents, just to have kids is agape, right? You sacrifice for them over and over and over. If they're going to grow up as semi-normal, you got to sacrifice for them. That's the way it is. Paul says, everything you do, do it with this sacrificial love. Do it with this giving love. Everything you do, do it with sacrificial love. And then at the end of the letter, Paul picks up the pen. And he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says, O Lord, come. The word is Maranatha. And I think what, what the feeling is, we say, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. It's connected to accursed. Oh, let him be accursed because Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May the love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, you read that. And when I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, what a way to end the letter. You know, it's almost like don't give Paul the pen. He's going to ruin it, right? Like, I mean, look, at he's, he, give me the pen. I got something I want. Like, he's even, he's dictating it. But it, it, I felt like it's almost like the politicians, they want to keep him off mic, you know. Don't give him the pen. He's going to ruin it at the end, right? But what does it mean, let him be accursed? You know, if the Bible can't offend you, it can't change you. If the Bible can't offend you, it can't change you. And Paul says this, if anyone does not have love. Now, earlier I said there's an agape love. What kind of love is he talking about here? Well, the Greek had four words for love. We have one. They have four. They have agape, which is that sacrificial love. They have eros, which is kind of the sexual uh, love. They have storge love, which is the kind of love that I have for my puppy. 
Or, you know, I'm, I love babies. I see a baby. I just have storge love. You know, they look like Winston Churchill when they're young. And you just love that little baby, don't you? I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And then there's the phileo love, the Philadelphia, the brotherly love. It's, a, it's an affection type of love. It's a feeling kind of love. And that's the love that Paul's using here. He says, if anyone does not have warm feelings of affection for the Lord, let him be accursed. Why would he say that? And he's not writing to the outsiders. This is to the church. This is to us. Well, you know, you read in Revelation, I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. I mean, there's there's this reoccurring theme. My um, priest friend out of Erie Uh, Father Larry, he said to me, Doug, you know what? You give me a youth worker that's crazy about Jesus, I'll teach him the rest. He says, when I look for a youth worker in my church, I look for somebody that's in love, the, the phileo kind of love, and I'll teach him the rest. Like people who are part of the church, the Apostle Paul would say, I don't want Jesus as just one of your choices. As just one item on the menu. I want your heart to beat with the passion of love. If not, there's a curse. And you know, I, I think we bring the curse on ourselves. Because, you know, we, we serve what we love. We say we love Jesus, but we really love money. It, it's a trap. If you put your family above Jesus, it's a trap. Right? And I think Paul knows this. That let him be accursed. We walk into the curse when our hearts follow other loves. And my prayer for us is that we can be a church that when we read this phrase out of this love poem in the Bible, I am my beloved's and he is mine, that it isn't just, oh, nice wedding verse, but it's a real thing that moves you. Like daily you can... Inside your heart, go, I am my beloved's. Like, Jesus, you bought me with your blood. You gave yourself for me. I am my beloved's. You hear about the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And when we use the word passion, it usually isn't suffering and death. We think of other things. Why? But that word passion describes Jesus' love for us. And if you and I can taste of that and respond with a similar passion, the Holy Spirit's there to help. Paul would say, you're blessed, not cursed. And what if the church could just deeply say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that we could taste that we are your beloved's that we could be moved in that direction. Lord, maybe some of us look and we're like, oh, fire that up in me. Turn up that, that passion. May I be like the, the woman who just got the engagement ring, the man who's head over heels for his gal. May some of that same kind of joy and jubilation be seen in our relationship with you. And we'll say thank you, Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.